Good morning. Welcome to First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Jim Moss. I'm a member here. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wasa has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. And that date always amazes me. 1858, imagine Wausau in 1858, and there's a Universalist church starting up here. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes and events. Be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. We have a few announcements. Please silence any electronic devices. Join us today for after the service for a heartwarming tradition that embodies the spirit of our unity and fellowship at our Universalist Unitarian Church, our community potluck lunch. The choir is hosting the potluck lunch. The, as required by the board bylaws, an annual meeting of the congregation will be held Sunday, December 3rd at 11.45 a.m. after the service. The meeting will be held in the sanctuary. We are seeking a host for the second Friday Nighters event on November 10. Second Friday Nighters is a long-standing tradition at UUASA. It's a fun-filled intergenerational evening in our very own church atrium and other times a privately hosted adult-only event. If you'd like to host, please contact the church office if you need assistance with hosting, just let us know. As we begin our, our worship together, let us take a moment to rise and extend peace to one another. Thank you. As we begin our worship together, well, uh, dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church, the chalice lighting in the uh, order of service.
Ours is a non-creedal church, not because we have no beliefs, but because we will not be restrained in our beliefs. Number 346, come sing a song with me.
Unitarian Universalism draws wisdom from many sources, and one of those sources is humanism. Rowan, they, he, is going to share with us a story this morning that lifts up some of the beliefs of humanism and what it means to be human, to have curiosity and reason, compassion and fairness in our relationships, working to shape our own lives, and our connection to each other and our common humanity. Rowan? Our story for today is I Am Human by Susan Veraday, illustrated by Peter Reynolds and published by Abrams Books for Young Readers. I was born a miracle, one of billions, but unique. I am human. I am always learning. I'm finding my way and choosing my path on this incredible journey. I have big dreams. I see possibility. I have endless curiosity. I make discoveries. I have a feeling of wonder. I am amazed by nature. I have a playful side. I find joy in friendships. I am human. But being human means I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I can hurt others with my words, my actions, and even my silence. I can be hurt too. I can be fearful of things I don't yet understand and timid to try something new. I have a heavy heart when I feel sadness. I am human. But then I remind myself that because I am human, I can make choices. I can move forward. A poor choice can become a better choice with thoughtfulness. A bad day can become a great day with kindness. I can act with compassion and lend a helping hand. I can treat others with equality and be fair. I can choose not to fight, but instead to listen and find a common ground. I can say I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness. I am human, one of billions, but unique. I am not alone. I am connected to my friends, to my family, to the world. We are all human together. And I will keep trying to be the best version of me. I am full of hope. I am human. The end. Thank you. There we go. Thank you, Rowan. This morning, our children and youth may remain in worship with their families, or our preschoolers through sixth graders are invited to head downstairs for our belated Halloween party and get in the mood. And our 7th through 12th graders are invited upstairs to Walker Hall, to so the very top floor, for their Connections Cafe. And I want to invite everyone to bless those who will be heading to RE with our children's song. The words are printed in your order of worship.
It's now time for prayer or meditation. Get yourself comfortable. Feet on the ground. If you want to close your eyes, you may do so. It helps take in a cleansing breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. We gather together as religious people from various traditions. We gather as people reaching across our difference, sharing our commitment to compassion and truth. Together, despite the record of violence and distrust in society around us, in this silent moment, let us give thanks for the blessings in our lives. For home and family, for faith and meaningful work, we give thanks. For our ability to gather in this way as people of peace, we give thanks. In the silent moment, we lift up those places in our lives and in our own hearts where burdens reside. May there be peace. May there be grace. May there be support. In this silent moment, let us cry out for the suffering of our world. for refugees freeing oppression and children haunted by cruelty, for the wars across the waters far away from us, and for battlefields created in nearby cities, for brutality and corruption, violence and distrust, let us speak in solidarity with the disempowered and join the voices of compassion and reason for a world filled with cruelty and greed. Let us set aside hate and devo devote our lives to the ways of peace and justice. Let us encourage peace to grow in any garden it can find. Let us remember the tragedies of our days and commit to building a better world. Let us be emissaries of justice and ambassadors of compassion. May it be so. Okay, our next hymn is number eight, Mother Spirit, Father Spirit. Mm -hmm. 
We say in our church that the offering is a sacrament of the free church. What we mean by that is that we believe it is a blessing to be able to govern and support our religious community ourselves, to make, poss po make, to make possible by our generosity everything we dream of and to live out in our shared values. Every week we lift up the spiritual value of generosity by taking an offering for the ministries of this church. Our plate then, as it has passed among us, becomes filled with evidence of the, that generosity. It is our harvest gathered in every week that most nourishes us. The ushers will now come among you to receive the gifts of the congregation. The morning offering will be most gratefully received. When we place a gift in the basket, and we also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit card or deb debit card. Thank you for your support. Good morning again. I appreciated Brian's invitation to uh, drive up to Wausau from my home in Madison. It's been probably 30 years since I've been in this illustrious building and it's good to be back. It's every bit as beautiful as I had remembered it to be. The first of the two readings that I wish to share with you this morning is from Barbara Ehrenreich 
a book entitled Living with a Wild God that was published in 2014. Barbara Ehrenreich was designated the 1998 Humanist of the Year by the American Humanist Association. She was trained in the sciences. She earned a PhD in cellular biology from Rockefeller University. She is the author of many other books, including some you might be familiar with, Fear of Falling and Nickeled and Dimed in America. But by the time she had published Living with a Wild God, her feelings about science, humanism, and spirituality had shifted just a bit. She died last year at the age of 81. She writes that my father harbored an undying antagonism toward religion. He bought himself a set of the complete works of Robert Ingersoll, and he sometimes bored us by reading aloud from these on Sunday morning. What he could not have guessed, and I only dimly understood at first, was that his insistence on utter rationality could cut the other way and eventually lead to doubts about the entire system that my parents held up as reality. I did not come to atheism the hard way by risking the blows of nuns or irate parents. I was born to atheism. I was raised in it by people who had derived their own atheism from a proud tradition of working class rejection of authority in all of its forms, whether vested in bosses or priests or gods or demons. At some point in the 80s, I published an essay-length history of American atheism that unearthed the stream of working-class atheism from which I was descended. I won awards. I won recognition from organizations of free thinkers and humanists. But eventually, I was no longer the kind of scornful, dogmatic atheist that my parents had been. When I read the book of Matthew in the Bible in my 40s, I was startled by the mad generosity that Jesus recommends. But then, as the Bible drones on, as Jesus fades away to be replaced by the risen Christ who holds out the promise of immortal life, the message takes on a nasty, selfish edge. To propagandists for the one true God, the rise of monotheism represents an unquestionable advance of human civilization. But it can also be seen as a process of deicide, a relentless culling of the gods and spirits until almost no one is left. And thus did monotheism pave the way for René Descartes and the dead world of Newtonian physics. But you know what? The natural world has gotten a lot livelier than it was when I first came on the scene as a young student of science. A bit of, um, dare I say, animism has entered the scientific worldview. The physical world is no longer either dead or passively obedient to certain strict laws. To quote the polymath and determinedly rationalistic Howard Bloom, we have vastly underrated the cosmos that gave us birth. We have understated her achievements, her capabilities, her creativity. We have set aside will, purpose, 
persistence in this magic enclosure and have claimed that they do not belong to nature. They belong solely to us, these qualities, to us as human beings. So we have, in other words, made ourselves far lonelier than we have any reason to be. My own adolescent solipsism is incidental compared to the collective solipsism of our species. What our species has embraced in the name of modernity and rationality pretends that there is no consciousness, no agency other than our own. The second offering, much briefer, is a poem by Robinson Jeffers. It may not be a particularly familiar name to you unless you are a student of American poetry. He was one of the best-selling poets in America during the 1930s and the 40s, but his reputation went into eclipse because too many Americans felt that his poetry was a little too dark for their taste. Carmel Point is perhaps his best-known poem. The extraordinary patience of things. This beautiful place defaced by a crop of suburban houses. How beautiful it was when we first beheld it. Unbroken fields of poppy, lupin, walled off by clean cliffs. No intrusion but two or three horses pasturing, or a few, a few milk cows rubbing their flanks on the outcrop rockheads. But now, now the spoiler has come. Does it care? Not faintly, because it has all time, and it knows that people are a tide that swells and in time will ebb and all their works dissolve. Meanwhile, the image of pristine beauty lives in the very grain of the granite, safe as the endless oceans that climb our cliff. As for us, we must uncenter our minds from ourselves. We must unhumanize our views a little and become as confident as the rock and the ocean that we were made from.
Thank you. Well, like many of you, I suppose, during the COVID-19 pandemic, my wife Trina and I, we spent our evenings in Madison at home rather than out enjoying restaurants, theater productions, or Badger sporting events. And so at one point, in sort of an air of desperation, we fired up the DVD player and we binge-watched 12 seasons of Bones a TV series that ran from 2005 to 2017. Anybody remember seeing Bones? Well, if, if so, you would remember that the show's main character is a forensic anthropologist by the name of Temperance Brennan. But she is nicknamed Bones by her colleague because she specializes in the human skeletal system. Now, Brennan is a quintessential humanist. She is the embodiment of reason, and she brings the same critical eye to both her professional endeavors and her personal affairs. She would undoubtedly second Albert Schweitzer's comment when he said that all real progress in the world in the last analysis is produced by rationalism. But in her dismissal, of emotionality and sentimentality and metaphysical faith and even the maternal instinct, she leads an intellectually engaging but otherwise unfulfilled life. And as the TV series progresses, Brennan's friends slowly but surely help her to find herself not just as an intellectual but as a feeling being. So the show presents Temperance Brennan as a serious, very, very effective researcher, but at times her commentary, her statements are extreme enough that she seems to me the parody of a humanist scientist. But is she any less believable than a real life character like Richard Dawkins? Folks like this believe that humanism has been a positive animating force in the rise of Western civilization. And they insist, they tell us, that if there were a more general application of humanist principles, we could all look forward to a brighter future. But a growing chorus of voices disagrees. And they point to a, the, the sprawling problems that now threaten to consume our planet. And these naysayers maintain that without significant modification, humanism may make a dystopian, if not an apocalyptic outcome, outcome more likely. Well, whose position is closer to the mark? Well, let me continue this discussion with a contemporary academic who has touted humanism as an indispensable philosophy for the 21st century and beyond. In his best-selling 2018 book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress, the Harvard professor Steven Pinker presents what is undoubtedly the most comprehensive, the most affirming belief in favor of humanism that we have seen in decades. How many people are familiar with Steven Pinker's work? Okay, several of you. 
Well, Pinker's definition is admirably succinct, if perhaps a bit too broad. Humanism, he explains, may be defined as a package of values designed to maximize human flourishing. To maximize human flourishing. And to the question whether it has achieved that purpose, Pinker's answer is a resounding, yes, it has. So he begins his analysis with the 18th century European Enlightenment, to which he assigns credit for advancing four ideas that have shaped the modern world. And these four ideas are reason, science, progress, humanism. Stephen Pinker esteems the Enlightenment because, as he proceeds to document, it has demonstrably worked. It has worked very well. Humankind has made progress on multiple fronts, despite protestations from the disciples of what he calls declinism. In a rare burst, in a rare burst of mixed literary illusion, Pinker describes his enemies, the declinists, as hollow men eating their naked lunches in the wasteland while waiting for Godot. <laughs> now for his part, Steven Pinker serves up reams of statistical evidence which show that the world has made spectacular progress in every single measure of human well-being. It is, he says, the greatest story seldom told. See, Pinker believes that too many of us have been negatively conditioned by news that over-reports the world's problems, but fails to highlight the many ways in which our lives have improved. None of us, he says, are as happy as we ought to be, given how amazing things have become. And credit for all this improvement belongs to our society's growing commitment to reason, science, humanism, and our confidence that further progress lies ahead. Now, Pinker concedes that people aren't always rational, that sometimes we do succumb to cognitive and mental biases that cloud our judgment. But on the whole, he says, in one realm after another, we are seeing the conquest of dogma and instinct by the armies of reason. Now, in his discussion of science, the fruits of which have been immeasurable, Pinker laments that scientific inquiry has too often been stymied, hindered, not only by stubborn religious superstition, but by intellectuals in the humanistic disciplines who have yet to recover from the disaster of postmodernism. Nevertheless, when all is said and done, Reason and science have amply demonstrated their efficacy. And if unexpected developments occur, negative trends occur, it is probably due to a variety of factors and forces that have eluded science and reason's authority. They lie outside the parameters of science and reason. Now, Steven Pinker's work is unapologetically anthropocentric because it focuses exclusively on human interests and needs. Humanism doesn't exclude the flourishing of animals, he tells us, but our focus should be on the welfare of moi, humankind. So reason, science, 
and unshakable belief in progress, these are all key elements of the humanist credo as Pinker understands it. And he also presents humanism as a much needed moral alternative to theism, to belief in God. He describes the world's most religiously observant countries as hell holes. And he recommends as an antidote a realistic outlook governed by rational thought and focused on human fulfillment. As countries get smarter, he says, they turn away from God. So this is a species of humanism that I call doctrinal humanism because it seems to hold that all of these claims that it makes are self-evident, indisputable. Pinker's arguments basically repeat, however, what humanists have been saying for almost a century, although he has more data at his disposal to make his points. So most notably, Beginning in 1933, sympathizers began working together to create a series of humanist manifestos, of which there have been at least four, the most recent having been drafted and circulated in 2003. How many people have read at least one humanist manifesto? They're worth your time. Although each one of these manifestos differs somewhat in the particulars, they consistently emphasize these five points. The evolutionary superiority of Homo sapiens and the centrality of human needs and interests, a position succinctly described as anthropocentrism. Second, a naturalistic outlook that finds no empirical evidence for the existence of supernatural entities of any kind or for the revealed truths that they prefer. Three, the unique and unparalleled primacy of reason as a means for understanding the world and negotiating its terms. Four, the unrivaled capacity of science and technology to create and indefinitely maintain an advanced civilization. Fifth and finally, the promise of unlimited material and social progress under the suzerainty of reason, science, and technology. So these then are what I believe to be the central tenets of contemporary doctrinal humanism. So now, just how much influence has this school of thought had on our culture, the culture at large? Well, we all know it's undoubtedly true that most Americans still profess a belief in God, heaven and hell, the veracity of scripture, the efficacy of prayer, and so forth. This is what people say they believe. But in the conduct of their daily lives, many of these same people have casually substituted reason for faith, material pursuits for piety, reliance on their own resourcefulness over the providential hand of God, and the prospect of material rewards here on earth for pie in the sky by and by. Clearly, we humans have mastered the art of holding two contrasting sets of ideas in our heads without being too bothered by their fundamental inconsistency. Now, admittedly, only a small minority of Americans would opt for that personal label, humanist. I am a humanist, 
rather than the vague, I'm spiritual, as in I'm spiritual but not religious. Still, the philosopher John Gray maintains that in Immanuel Kant's time, the creed of conventional people was Christian. Now, he says, it's humanist. The best-selling historian Yuval Noah Harari agrees. He says the typical American today is simultaneously a nationalist, a free market capitalist, and a liberal humanist. Are you with me so far? Now we're going to shift gears. Humanism's critics have responded with a variety of objections. Those with a religious or spiritual outlook are bothered by humanism's secular orientation and its absolute repudiation of metaphysics in all of its forms. Other critics take exception to what they feel is an overestimation of the powers of human reason, a rather crabbed perspective on human progress, an excessive confidence in science and technology, an anthropocentric orientation that prioritizes human needs and interests over those of other life forms. Those are some of the objections that we find in the anti-humanist camp. But taken together, these skeptics largely agree that in its present form, doctrinal humanism is not up to the challenges that our species now faces. Okay, so I've already mentioned this guy named John Gray, philosopher, cultural historian at the University of London. So after the publication of Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now, Gray dismissed Pinker's work as comic book history because it failed to honestly address many of the Enlightenment era's contradictions. And Gray also accuses Pinker of scientism because he presents science as a methodology capable of untangling all confusion, solving all problems. Pinker believes that if we would only accept science's epistemological supremacy, all of our ethical and political problems would just go away. According to John Gray, there is absolutely no evidence to support that claim. It is a strange fallacy, he writes. A strange fallacy to suppose that science can bring reason to an irrational world when all it can do is give another twist to the normal madness. He rues the fact that Homo sapiens' moral and ethical development has lagged far behind its scientific and material gains. Ethics and morals, John Gray says, have been sidelined in the ceaseless pursuit of wealth and power. Human knowledge increases, he says. Human irrationality remains the same. Now, in recent times, environmentalists and life scientists have proven to be some of the fiercest critics of humanism's core beliefs. And for purposes of my remarks this morning, I'm going to focus on just one of those individuals, a woman named Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of the 2013 book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She's a, bi a biologist. She's a distinguished professor. Robin Wall Kimmerer is an enrolled member of the Upper Midwestern Potawatomi tribe, and she also recognizes the limitations of her own scientific training. 
Now, she's grateful that science has equipped her to, to see aspects of nature that remain largely hidden to those who are uninitiated in science. But at the same time, she agrees with the native scholar Greg Cahete that of the four faculties by which we apprehend the world, mind, body, emotion, spirit, that science privileges only the first of these and, well, maybe the second. And so Kimmerer shares a story that was related to her by another of her native friends. It seems that a plant scientist had ventured into the South American rainforest hoping to discover new, potentially useful biological resources. A young indigenous guide accompanies him into the forest and this young man eagerly points out certain plants that he thinks might arouse the scientist's interest. And the latter, the scientist, is pleasantly surprised by the boy's familiarity with so many of the forest species. My goodness, he even knows their formal scientific names. So he compliments the young man on his achievement. With downcast eyes, the man says, yes, yes, I have learned the names of all the bushes but I have yet to learn their songs. Kimmerer remarks that while scientific language aims for precision, it captures only a very thin slice of reality, and it misses much of what indigenous cultures understand and cherish about the land that they inhabit. Native peoples, she writes, employ this language of animacy which Barbara Ehrenreich mentioned in the reading earlier. And that's also the language of animacy, the language that toddlers of all races and all cultures use when they're trying to describe their encounters with nature. Until, she says, we teach them not to. Small children naturally regard plants and animals as persons, as people who possess qualities not unlike their own but trained over time to see a tree as an it rather than a thou, then it becomes so much easier to take up the chainsaw and reduce that tree to just one more exploitable resource. Animacy is a quality that aspiring scientists are trained to ignore, if not to laugh at. Getting these professionals to consider the validity of indigenous knowledge, she says, is like swimming upstream in cold, cold water. And here, Kimmerer could have been speaking directly to the celebrated humanist scientist E.O. Wilson. Prior to the advent of modern science, was there any knowledge worth preserving that was at all useful today, E.O. Wilson asks. In answering his own question, he insists that pre-scientific cultures were wrong, always, always wrong. Without exception, they demonstrated a talent only for inventing ingenious speculations and myths. That's all they were good for, according to Wilson. Now, Robin Wall Kimmerer never seriously doubts the value of her own scientific training, but she draws a crucial distinction between the practice of science and the scientific worldview that moderners like E.O. Wilson subscribe to. Real science, Kimmerer insists, real science 
brings the questioner into an unparalleled intimacy with a nature that is fraught with wonder as we try to understand the mysteries of the more than human world. But when science is commandeered, and when it is placed in the service of an all-knowing worldview, the scientific worldview, it ends up being used to reinforce a reductionistic, materialistic, economic, and political agenda. And ultimately, the scientific worldview separates knowledge from responsibility. And so Kimmerer notes that in today's industrialized, engineered world, a world held in thrall by the scientific worldview, nature becomes a Cartesian machine with human beings as the drivers. And this strikes indigenous people as arrogant. Among my own people, Kimmerer explains, humans are seen as the younger brothers of creation who are obliged to learn from their elders in the greater community of sovereign beings. But it takes humility to submit to lessons that the other sentient beings surrounding us have to offer. And it is not a virtue that is too often found among those who have thrown in their lot with scientific materialism and humanism. Well, this brief survey would not be complete without a foray into the field of dystopian literature, a genre in which anti-humanist sentiments are frequently expressed. Almost without exception, these narratives describe a future world devastated by the unforeseen consequences of advanced technology, technology gone awry. Now, there are many candidates to choose from here, C.S. Lewis, Margaret Atwood, Ray Bradbury, Cormac McCarthy, but I will highlight today Ursula K. Leguin. In her novel entitled Always Coming Home, Leguin envisions a post-apocalyptic civilization very much different from our own. And her story is set in her own native California, probably the Napa Valley, at a time so far in the future that people cannot even recall how it was that the great transformation took place or, or who was responsible for it. She calls this valley the Valley of the Ketch. And the inhabitants of this valley tell stories about a scary people who lived long, long ago who had their heads on backward. And these dimly recalled terrifying individuals were in reality the Keshe's distant ancestors. And these were the people that were responsible for the near destruction of the entire planet. According to the Keshe mythology, those who had done these things had done wrong mindfully, rationally. They had their heads on wrong. Now, lengthy sections of Leguin's novel describe the rituals, the songs, the holidays, the myths, the social customs, the architectural and transportational structures of this imaginary cash culture. And taken together, these ethnographic details add up to an intimate portrait of a society that completely reinvents itself following a global cataclysm. And she tries to imagine how humans might emerge from the ashes 
and create something much, much better, a comfortable, creative, spiritually nurturing, egalitarian culture that's in harmony with the natural environment. And so the Kesh are a people who have created a sustainable culture, not by going forward, but by going backwards, opting for a society rich in traditional values and low-tech solutions rather than one like our own that prizes novelty and unrestrained technological innovation. It's not an uncomfortable culture, but it's a much simpler one. Now, Lagine has stated elsewhere that Western civilization places far too much faith in reason, that we elevate reason to a godhead. And the utopias conjured up by this Euclidean reason have now acquired a self-destructive capacity that, that demands, she says, a subversive response. And her book, Always Coming Home, is her response to that dilemma. Okay, so what's the upshot? My own feeling is that there are aspects of humanism that we would do well to retain. Now, it's one thing to criticize the scientific worldview. It's quite another to downplay science's indispensable role in such areas as healthcare and renewable energy. And one lesson that we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic is that too many people in this culture did not take the science seriously enough. Even worse, they were encouraged to dismiss the warnings and the advice from medical experts as so much propaganda from the deep state. Progress, on the other hand, this other linchpin of doctrinal humanism. Progress is kind of a vexed concept, and its singular focus on technological advance and on a standard of living measured almost exclusively in material terms, that's not wearing very well these days. The internal combustion engine, a digitalized multiverse, toxic industrial agriculture, burgeoning arsenals of destructive weapons. All of these are wreaking havoc on both our environment and the well-being, physical and psychological, of our own species. The good news is that at least a few self-identified humanists have, in recent years, raised serious doubts about the positions that their doctrinal counterparts have staked out. And one of these humanists is a man named Anthony Pinn. He's an African-American professor of the humanities at Rice University in Houston. And Dr. Pinn's project is to replace that humanism founded on Eurocentric Enlightenment values, to replace it with a more universal philosophy that takes into consideration the experience and the needs of marginalized people throughout the world. In fact, Pin's brand of humanism can truthfully said to be said to constitute an anti-humanism because it explicitly rejects much of the platform on which doctrinal humanism rests. Now, what Anthony Pin and Steven Pinker's humanisms do agree upon is the irrelevancy, actually the unreality, of any supernatural entity that meddles in human affairs. They're on the same page as far as that goes. But Anthony Pinn, unlike Steven Pinker, reserves a place in his humanism for religion because religious language, religious celebration, religious meditation, 
religious theological speculation, all of these must continue to play a role in people's lives. So he says whether one is theistic or non-theistic in one's thinking and practices, there is this basic need to render our lives meaningful. Theists do this through a turn to divine beings impinging their will on the world. We non-theists do this by relying strictly on the abilities of the human animal. Like its doctrinal counterpart, Pin's humanism draws on the discoveries and the insights of science, and for him, the concept of symmetry occupies a prominent place in his thinking. And he says symmetry is one idea by which man throughout the ages has tried to comprehend and create order and beauty and perfection. On the other hand, Anthony Pinn warns that we should not be vesting science with more authority than is warranted because science is never free from the taint of sociological commitments. It's always got some biases depending on the culture in which it operates. Lacking an element of self-critical awareness, science can easily morph into scientism, which is a faith of its own. Pin's critique of progress, the narrative of progress, so dear to the heart of many doctrinal humanists, is also telling. Pin advocates for a measured realism, a measured realism in place of the one-directional, linear vision of history, upward and onward forever, that is a child of the Enlightenment. Progress is by no means inevitable in Anthony Pin's view. And it is just as likely that societal transformations will produce misery rather than uplift. So he says, this is a different kind of humanism, one made more worldly or world-worn based on the ways in which advances in human knowledge and capacity have worked not for but against the flourishing of life. And then finally, Pin repudiates the immoderate anthropocentrism that has long been an important talking point for doctrinal humanists like Steven Pinker. Non-theistic humanism is grounded in the raw stuff of our struggle, our human struggle. But we need to recognize that ours is but one of a myriad of species who inhabit this planet, and so we must act in ways, as our own seventh principle indicates, in which we do not simply assert our own prerogatives, but we acknowledge our interconnectedness with the living world around us. So in many ways, Anthony Penn's humanism reflects actually the lesson that was conveyed by the time for all ages story that we heard at the beginning of this service. And it's very different from the doctrinal humanism that I spoke about at the beginning of my discourse. So, at the end of the day, I believe that the question is not, are you or are you not a humanist? That's not the question. The question, to my mind, is which humanism is for you the best fit? Blessed be and amen. I would uh, note at this point that this particular discourse is based on a book, a book that I spent four and a half years writing that was just published last month 
And if you are at all interested in what I had to say today, I actually took the liberty of bringing some copies with me. And they are out in the gathering room following the service if you would like to purchase one. So after that little commercial, um, we have a hymn that we're going to sing together, which is a very appropriate one given the circumstances, number 131. join hands for the benediction. These are words from Clinton Lee Scott, a Universalist minister. And I can't remember either he or his son was a minister of this church for a period of time. He also was the only Universalist minister to sign the original Humanist Declaration and the Humanist Manifesto in 1933. He says, churches are many, but religion is native to all humankind. In vanity, creeds are drawn by unbending minds and doctrines fashioned like garments to cover the nakedness of the unknown. There is religion authorized by no priest, no prelate, resting upon no book or holy writ. It resides rather in the tender conscience, in the ethical quality of thought and action, in compassion for suffering, in response to human need, and in moral indignation over wrong. There is in this world a vast unnamed fellowship of goodwill, and its members are in all churches, all temples, all mosques, and in none of these. Wherever good persons stand is holy ground, and the manner of their lives is their religion. Amen.